Welcome back to another episode. Here, when we look out at the universe, we see that it's not only filled with stars, galaxies, and light from a whole bunch of different sources, but it's also filled with dust, with neutral matter, with normal matter that's bound together and that actually is capable of both blocking that light and absorbing some of that light and re-radiating it. This cosmic dust exists all over the universe and powers everything from star formation to stellar death to planet formation to absorption and re-emission in the interstellar medium and a whole lot more. What can we learn from cosmic dust till stellar dawn? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. All throughout the universe, there is so much that's going on that's easily visible to our telescopes, to our eyes, and to whatever tools we choose to look at the universe in, and yet there's also a whole lot going on that we have to be very specific and very careful in our search to examine it if we want to truly find out what's going on. Cosmic dust is one of those things. It's out there, and we ignore its effects at our own peril. If we truly want to understand what happens as far as star formation, stellar death, planet birth, and a whole lot more, we have to be careful and scrupulous in examining it. And here to help us understand the role that cosmic dust plays in many of these applications and beyond, I'm so pleased to welcome PhD candidate Carla Arcetord. Carla is a PhD candidate at the Universidad de Chile and has been an undergrad in Spain and has traveled all over the world in her quest to better understand the dust that, honestly, we all owe our existence to. Carla, I'm so pleased to have you here, and welcome to the show. Hi, Ethan. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very, very happy to be here to talk about cosmic dust and how, how we observe it here from Earth. Yeah, I'm so excited to get into this. So can I ask you, this is, this is maybe a philosophical question to start off with, but you know, for all of us, when we when we begin studying the universe, there's there's normally something about it that that sparks our curiosity. Something about it that says to us, that speaks to us. Um, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to learn about. This is what I want to know about. Can I ask you? what that inspiration was for you and how, out of all the things to choose, to study, to specialize in, to get your expertise level up in, how how did you come to choose that cosmic dust was going to be that special, interesting thing for you? Well, actually, uh, I chose to specialize in cosmic dust during my master's but uh, it all came from my interest in radio astronomy and when i studied physics because i i chose to study physics as an undergraduate because um i have always been interested in in astronomy and astrophysics uh, since i was a little girl i would always ask about the stars about the planets uh, questions about how big the universe could be 
And I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to study the universe. So I started studying physics and during um, my undergrad career, I discovered the radio astronomy world, which I really, really liked. So I started working in radio astronomy, instrumentation, uh, interferometry techniques. And when I started my master's in Spain, uh, I discovered the world of cosmic dust and I really liked it. And I could uh, study most of those properties uh, using um, radio or submillimeter wavelengths, also infrared wavelengths, but mainly submillimeter. Uh, and really, really nice uh, radio telescopes or interferometers such as ALMA. So that's why I um, stayed in this field that I keep doing until now. You know, that's that's really fascinating. I remember learning my very first story about how we recognized that there was light out there beyond the visible light spectrum, and it actually came from William Herschel, who famously discovered the planet Uranus, uh, that he had a prism on his desk, and the sunlight would shine through the window and would shine through the prism, and he would have this little rainbow of visible light from blue through red wavelengths uh, appear on his desk during the day. And he had his left hand down on the desk below where the red part of that spectrum ended, and it actually started to get hot. And he realized uh, pretty quickly that what was happening was his hand was actually receiving longer wavelength light, was receiving infrared light from that sunlight that was passing through the prism. And of course, over the centuries, we've gone and applied that knowledge that there's shorter wavelength uh light out there than visible wavelength light, like ultraviolet X-ray and gamma rays. Um, even though the atmosphere does an excellent job of absorbing them, we've launched telescopes to space that can observe in those wavelengths. And then on the longer wavelength line, we have infrared, both near, mid, and far infrared. We have microwave radiation. Then we get into the millimeter, submillimeter, and that sort of goes into the radio as well. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, your your early life uh, dreams of the stars, of what was out there, of the universe, um, that your interest in cosmic dust and your interest in radio astronomy it not only grew out of your interest in uh, what was out there, but it also grew out of our capabilities of what we learned how to do, about what we learned uh, was out there in terms of the signals that were out there, and our advances in instrumentation that enabled us to start viewing the universe in these wavelengths of light. It makes me really proud of how far we've come collectively as a species and it also makes me excited for the next generation of astronomers because they're going to have more than just multi-wavelength light to examine the universe in. They're also going to have gravitational waves, they're also going to have cosmic rays, and they're also going to have neutrinos, which are all fast becoming new novel ways to examine and image the sky in terms of what is out there in the universe. Yes, I'm also uh, very excited uh, with all our uh, technological advances in this uh, field because, for example, I'm I cannot uh, stop being amazed by what the interferometry technique is able to achieve, especially in radio astronomy. I mean, 
uh, it is just a matter of um, collecting data with a group of telescopes apart from each other, radio telescopes apart from each other, and get such incredible images or amazing information, for example, as the uh, image of the black hole we got some years ago by using this uh, interferometry technique in radio. I mean, it, it amazes me until today, even though I've worked on it for years, it still amazes me a lot. Well, I, I really think about it in terms of this, right? We we have two eyes in our head, and we're actually very lucky that we have two eyes in our head, because if you close one eye, you get you get an image of, of the universe. You get an image of the world and what's out there, but it's flat. It's a flattened image. You can tell what's closer and what's farther from what's in the foreground and what's in the background, but we really only have uh, our brains to fill in the gaps, right? It's by, by moving our head around from side to side that we can sort of get this uh, this view of how far away these different objects are. But with two eyes, when you look from multiple perspectives at once, your brain gets this stereo information. It gets information from two different perspectives at once. And uh, what the technique of interferometry allows us to do is it basically says, look, we're not just going to say, we're going to look with two different locations. We're not going to look with two different telescopes simultaneously. I mean, we can, but we can also look with an array of telescopes simultaneously. Instead of two eyes, we could use something like ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, which has 66 individual eyes, separated not by the few centimeters that our eyes are separated by, but by many, many kilometers in distance. We can stitch various telescopes and arrays of telescopes together from all across the Earth and have it see objects as though it had its two eyes separated by the diameter of our entire planet. And in the future, we may even be able to go to space and to start creating networks of telescopes linked through interferometry that could potentially extend to the size of Earth's orbit, that could extend for hundreds of thousands of kilometers uh, all around wherever we choose to put them. Because when it comes to what you can see, your light-gathering power is limited by the sum total of all the di the dishes and telescopes that you looked uh, through. It's the sum total of your collecting area of all the individual dishes. But your resolution is limited by the space between the telescopes or the dishes or your eyes. So that's how we can image something as tiny as a black hole's event horizon from tens of thousands or even tens of millions of light years away, depending on how big the black hole is. Yes, I found that amazing. And I think that as you mentioned, uh, in the future, we will have even uh, more incredible uh, things to come in, in within the interferometry uh, techniques. Because yes, uh, we will, we, I hope we will be able to uh, do this uh, in space by using the satellites. There are even some projects of uh, trying to build uh, observatories on the moon's surface. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, plans, so let's see what happens. But there's also another advantage. We will be able to uh, avoid Earth's atmosphere, especially water vapor, which is uh, 
radio astronomy's uh, principal enemy. So we will get a lot of advantages in the future uh, by improving our interferometry techniques and the location of our radio telescopes. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about that as well. You know, I've uh, I've been a fan of LOFAR. Oh boy. Okay, I can't remember the acronym, but LOFAR is an array of radio telescopes that they propose to put on the far side of the moon. Because on the far side of the moon, you are shielded from all of the messy radio emissions that occur all over planet Earth, right? Humans are we're a noisy species and we make our own radio noise. But if you put this array on the far side of the moon, uh, the moon will shield you from all of those radio emissions. And without Earth's atmosphere to contend with, which, like you said, is uh, full of water vapor, which absorbs at the exact wavelengths we want to observe the universe in, uh, the moon has pretty much no atmosphere. It's a really good vacuum. Uh, so that's an excellent location as well. One of the things that we do today is we're sort of limited uh, by ground-based radio astronomy to certain windows where the atmosphere is relatively transparent. There are specific frequency ranges where we can observe the universe. But if we can go up into space, if we can go to the far side of the moon, if we can go outside of Earth's atmosphere, we're going to be able to start observing the universe in a whole slew of wavelengths, just as going to space has revolutionized ultraviolet X-ray and gamma-ray astronomy, I fully expect that when we start getting infrastructure of the same quality that ALMA, Green Bank, Parks, um, the VLA, that all of these various arrays and telescopes across the world have on Earth, when we can get that type of infrastructure up in space, it's really going to revolutionize what we're able to see and investigate and uncover about the universe. Yes, I totally agree with you, and I hope it happens uh, in the next decade, so let's see. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, we? I, I think we all know what we can see when we look at the universe in visible light, and invisible light, I will say, from my part, dust just looks like darkness. Dust just looks like light-blocking stuff that's in the way absorbing visible light. And it absorbs blue light better than it absorbs red light, but it absorbs all visible light if there's enough of it. What can we learn about this dust by examining it at radio frequencies instead of limiting ourselves to visible light frequencies? Well, the most uh, popular radio emission, or being more specific, millimeter emission, uh, is because it, I mean, it uh, originates because uh, these dust grains are heated by external radiation within the interstellar medium or within a protoplanetary disk. And uh, since these dust grains are heated, they will re-emit this thermal uh, energy they are uh, they now have. So this um, emission is within the sub-millimeter uh, and even towards the millimeter ranges. Depends on the the kind of um, areas you are studying. But there's also another uh, radio emission dust-correlated radio emission, uh, which is which was discovered uh, in the late 90s by doing studies of the CMB, 
which is called the anomalous microwave emission or AMI. It is uh, around uh, 50 gigahertz, uh, between 30 and 50 gigahertz or even 100 gigahertz, which is uh, um, low. These are lower frequencies than the thermal emission. And this is another interesting field. Actually, I have studied uh, a little bit of anomalous microwave emission in certain uh, regions. So this anomalous microwave emission originates uh, due to the spinning of dust grains, but these are specific dust grains of a specific nature, specific chemistry. And this is an um, electric dipole emission due to the uh, spinning of these dust grains. So, uh, you know, the most famous one is definitely the thermal dust emission, but AMI or anomalous microwave emission has been really studied in the last years. What has been, um, it's, it has been more difficult to uh, study uh, AMI uh, within higher resolutions, you know, to try and um, resolve or to try and um, identify in which specific regions or areas this emission is coming from. So we would need a higher angular resolutions in radio frequencies, which is kind of difficult, but we are getting there. And um, actually with ALMA band one, which will be around Amy's uh, frequency range, uh, we will be able to um, study this kind of dust emission uh, with higher angular resolutions. So I would say that the two most uh, important uh, emission mechanisms around dust are the thermal emission and the electric dipole emission, which is A. Carla, this is really exciting because you've gone and you've taken us from sort of this historical view of radio astronomy and multi-wavelength astronomy right up to the cutting edge uh, immediately. You did it in like three minutes. It was awesome. So... <laughs> Uh, if I'm going to ask about this, just to fill in some gaps for our readers, um, when you talk about, uh, you know, 30, 50, 100 gigahertz, um, we know that all electromagnetic wavelengths, including radio light, uh, it all travels at the speed of light. So what we do is we say frequency times wavelength has to equal a constant. It has to equal the speed of light. So when you're talking about going to higher and higher and higher frequencies from from 50 from 30 gigahertz to 50 gigahertz to 100 gigahertz and I know that in theory Alma could potentially get you all the way up through the hundreds of gigahertz into the terahertz range um you're actually talking about when you're talking about larger frequencies you're talking about going down to shorter and shorter wavelengths so I'm used to, you know, when we talk about optical wavelengths, we're talking about wavelengths that are a few hundreds of nanometers. When we're talking about infrared wavelengths, we're talking from about 700 nanometers into the tens or even hundreds of microns. What, how large of a wavelength, like how physically large of a range are we talking about when we're talking about 30, 50, 100, or 1,000 gigahertz, right? These are, these are higher frequencies. So what types of wavelengths are we talking about? What is the wavelength of this light we're looking at? 
Well, the highest radio frequencies uh, are equivalent to sub-millimeter uh, wavelengths, and it can go up to millimeter wavelengths and even to centimeter wavelengths. For example, when you want to study lower frequencies, such as um, free-free emission or synchrotron emission, you can reach, uh, yeah, you can mostly reach centimeters wavelengths. You know, for example, if instead of using ALMA, you can use a radio telescope, so radio telescopes such as the VLA, the Very Large Array in the US. And the VLA uh, operates in uh, lower frequencies, which are uh, higher wavelengths. So you can go from sub-millimeter wavelengths up to centimeter wavelengths. It depends on which phenomena you want to study. And this is, this is pretty interesting to me because there's a correlation between um, between the frequencies that dust emits and absorbs at, and also the physical size of the dust grains. You know, normally when I think about space, I think about things being really diffuse, and I think about things like individual subatomic particles, or individual atoms, or individual ions, or occasionally uh, molecules like carbon monoxide, or carbon dioxide, or water, or these individual molecules. But when we're talking about dust, we're talking about much, much bigger collections of particles than simply individual atoms or molecules, aren't we? Yes, we're talking about uh, specifically dust grains. I mean, these dust grains have a certain chemical composition, and uh, depending on their chemical composition, they uh, re-emit or behave differently. But yes, we're talking about uh, dust particles, which, as you said, they vary in size and uh, their size is uh, related to the wavelength or the frequency we're observing at. Yeah, and these, these dust particles are, are much, much bigger than individual molecules or atoms or ions. These are, you know, th these can be things that are themselves uh, from, I would say, uh, a few micron sizes up to, up to maybe uh, almost pebble, almost pebble sizes. Like these are small rocks, aren't they at this point? Yeah, yeah, they go from microns to yeah, centimeters and even meters. When we are in the field of a planet formation, we are we start talking about uh, meter sized dust grains. But that's like another whole field, which is still under review because we are in the, it, I mean, with radio telescopes as ALME, we want to, we want to try and understand how uh, from we, we go from a uh, micrometer sized uh, grains to meter sized grains. That's still kind of a mystery now. So how how does grain growth work? But yeah, you have different sizes and depending on the size of the dust grain, you observe at certain frequencies. Yeah, no, this is all this is all super exciting. And like I said, we're we're trying to condense a whole field of astronomy where where hundreds, if not thousands of people come together to work on this into one episode of a podcast here. So thank you for thank you for being part of this very ambitious project. Um because one of the things I'm I'm sort of curious about is how we do that. We know that we, and when I say we, I mean planet Earth and everything on it, we came from dust. There was dust 
there, there's dust everywhere that we see new stars forming. There's dust all throughout the interstellar medium, which is the material that new stars form from. There's dust all throughout protoplanetary disks, which are these environments that give rise to planets. And we also see dust uh, in the plane of, of spiral galaxies. We see dust in nebulae, in star-forming regions. We see dust around stellar remnants uh, like planetary nebulae and supernovae uh, we see dust being blown off by uh, very massive stars um this dust is everywhere and remarkably it's doing all the things that we expect matter to do it it gets ionized it gets polarized it rotates uh, it it spins it moves through the universe it can even generate magnetic fields because anything that's charged that moves will generate magnetic fields and these electric and magnetic fields that it gets can actually polarize the light that's emitted from it so i know there's all sorts of different types of dust mapping that can go on i know there's all sorts of different types of dust both in terms of size and composition that different radio frequencies are sensitive to um what would you say if i were to ask you a couple of big questions what are some of the biggest things that humanity has learned about cosmic dust in recent years or decades and what are some of the biggest questions that we're actively trying to answer about cosmic dust today? I'll start with the last question, which is, uh, which would be the biggest question today. And I think one of the biggest, uh, let's say, questions or mysteries is um, how do planets form? Because uh, we know that planets should form from dust and gas and uh, aggregation and uh, the big question or one of the big questions is uh, how does this dust start growing how can one a uh, grain of dust collide with another grain of dust and blue themselves so i think that uh with uh, radio observatories such as alma or even other uh, in other wavelengths, such as uh, infrared with the JWST telescope, we will get uh, answers within the, the next years about uh, planet formation, formation, because I think this is um, one of the biggest questions in this field. And um, other, I mean, big questions we have answered in the past by studying cosmic dust would be uh, star formations, for example, because uh, we have studied uh, by studying the dust in interstellar medium, uh, we can understand uh, how this dust behaves, dust and gas, of course, how this behaves to start forming new stars, which is the influence of certain parameters such as the magnetic field, for example, in the star forming region that helps uh, the collapse of all this matter to form a star. And I think we have uh, we have a lot of valuable information in this field of star formation due to the observation of dust, specifically due to the observation of um, polarization by using dust grains. 
So I would say that those are the two uh, basic or most relevant uh, things in the field of cosmic dust. You know, I I love both of those. As far as as far as star formation goes, uh, one of the big questions that I'm really really hoping, and a lot of people are telling me now it's probably not going to do it, but I I I don't believe them. I think I think we've got a chance, and I can't wait to see is whether the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to find populations of stars that formed from the pristine material that was left over after the Big Bang. That is, stars made purely of hydrogen and helium and like a ten millionth of a percent lithium um, that that didn't have any dust. Like, like we were talking about, dust is mostly made out of these heavier molecules. Dust is mostly made out of things that that are our matter bound together. Back in the early universe, we didn't have any of those heavy elements. We didn't have carbon or oxygen or silicon or iron. We didn't have any of them. All we had was hydrogen and helium and a tiny bit of lithium. And that means when you go to form stars, in today's universe, we only see stars forming in dusty regions. We only see stars form where dust is present. And we think that's because we need that dust to radiate and cool. Otherwise, we would need star-forming regions to be super large and super massive uh, because without that dust to cool it, you would need much, much more great amounts of matter to gravitationally collapse. You would need these greater masses together to lead to gravitational collapse because without that efficient cooling that dust provides, you can't collapse down to form a star. And that should also mean the very first stars that formed must have been much more massive. I've seen estimates that the average star that should have formed from this pristine material would have been 25 times as massive as the average star that forms today. That instead of, you know, 40% of the mass of the sun, the average star in the early universe that formed would have been 10 times the mass of the sun, and that the most massive stars, instead of being hundreds of times as massive as the sun, might have been thousands of times as massive as the sun. Um, dust is really what makes the stars we're familiar with possible. I'm really curious what dust-free star formation looks like. Um, do you think such a thing is even possible? Like how, what do you hope to find out about that? Well, uh, to get observational evidence of uh, uh, population three stars, I think it's, mm, it's very complex because uh, this kind of stars uh, lived really, 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 they lived a very, very short time. So uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, I read uh, an article, a scientific paper, uh, which uh, described uh, evidence of population three stars, but by studying their remains within um, the environment or around the environment of a really old quasar. But to observe uh, population three stars directly, uh, I think is very difficult but perhaps not impossible so let's see what happens 
But yeah, I mean, uh, it would be really nice to have observational evidence of this kind of stars, of really, really old stars. Yeah, but this this also, I think, highlights uh, just how important cosmic dust is, because it's it's got to be these first stars that create the first populations of cosmic dust, which enable the formation of stars like the ones we see and observe and that persist today. Um, I think when we look at galaxies that don't have dust, they aren't forming stars anymore, and that's what we mean by a red and dead galaxy. They're dust-free galaxies, and the reason we call them red is because all of these blue stars, the hottest stars, the youngest stars, they're also the most massive stars, and they burn through their fuel the fastest, and they die the quickest. So when we see a galaxy where all of the stars within it are red, orange, and yellow, we know, oh, it's not because something about this galaxy means it only forms red, orange, and yellow stars and not the white and blue ones. It's that the blue and white ones have already run out of fuel and died, and only the yellow, orange, and red ones survive. And that's, uh, that's kind of remarkable to me, that we need, in order to get the universe we have, we need there to have been stars that formed where there was no dust. And we know also that's something that no longer happens today. Yeah, it would be really interesting to directly observe these kinds of uh, stars, primitive stars. So yeah, I would I think that in in that case we would have more evidence on how uh cosmic dust started to I mean the origins of cosmic dust and its evolution throughout uh the history of our universe and it would be really interesting to get more to gain more insights on on cosmic dust evolution. One of the things that I really like seeing is, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't always appreciate this because I'm a, I'm a cosmology guy. So to me, things like dust and stars, uh, all of this is stuff in the way, right? This is not stuff that for me was inherently interesting. But one of the things that I started really appreciating was when you have stars that are on the path towards stellar death, stars that are evolved, stars that have grown large and puffy, uh, they start shedding their outer layers. They start blowing off material into the interstellar medium. And when a star becomes either a planetary nebula or a supernova remnant, depending on how massive it is and how it dies, one of the things that we see is that all of that material, or at least a large fraction of that material that gets blown off, gets illuminated, gets shocked, gets heated, and we can actually see that this material has condensed and coalesced and become cosmic dust. Is it fair to say that these corpses of old dead stars, of stars that have gone through their life cycle and lived and died, that this is where cosmic dust comes from? Or are there other sources of cosmic dust that that might rival this as a method of production? Now, definitely uh, the life cycle of stars are uh, one of the major, um, I mean, 
Stars, when, as you described, when they reach the end of their life cycle, they uh, explode, generally speaking, explode either as supernovae or they form this uh, planetary nebula and all this um, material that they expelled enriches the interstellar medium. And a lot of processes go by, such as uh, temperature changes, uh, a formation of bigger dust grains. It depends on the environment, but definitely the death of these stars contributed to the formation of uh, new generation of stars by enriching the interstellar medium. I, I love that. That's really interesting. So with that said, that's where dust comes from. And that's, that's how dust is made. And there are plenty of people who study those environments as, you know, as what they do. They look at stars, they look at stellar remnants, they look at the interstellar medium, uh, and they say, this is, this is dust, and this is where the dust is the most interesting. And then there are some people who say, okay, look, that's where the dust comes from, that's where the dust is, but I think the dust is more interesting when we look at these protoplanetary disks, when we look at these regions around young stars or protostars, and we start saying, oh, wow, look at this. This is where the dust becomes something more interesting than tiny dust grains. We're not looking at dust grains in the submillimeter range. We're not looking at dust grains that are a few hundred microns big. We're not looking at the same dust grains that, you know, are the same size as my far infrared radiation. We're instead looking at dust grains as they're growing, as they're becoming uh, sort of these... You might remember um, a few times now over during the 21st century, we've actually landed on or collided with comets or asteroids. And some of these were, were large bodies, right? When we send a spacecraft to Ceres or to uh, one of the other large asteroids that are out there, it's, it's mostly a solid object. But when we go and visit the smaller ones, like when we visited Comet 67P with the ESA's Rosetta mission, when we visited asteroid Itokawa with Japan's um, Hayabusa mission, and more recently when NASA's DART mission collided with, uh, with the asteroid that was out there, we got to see close-ups of these surfaces, and they're like these little rubble piles, right? There's like these little tiny pebble piles of, of dust and dirt and tiny rocks or rock-like materials that have all aggregated together. And I imagine that somehow this is what cosmic dust builds up to form in these protoplanetary disks, that it forms these little tiny uh, particles that aggregate together to make protoplanetesimals. And then over time, under the influence of gravity, which works to pull things together, and also against the backdrop of radiation and solar wind particles emitted by the stars that it's forming around, it forms a mix of planets, moons, uh, asteroids, 
Kuiper Belt-like objects, Oort Cloud-like objects, and the remainder gets blown away back into the interstellar medium. That story of how does dust grow up to make planets and eventually biological organisms, that seems like um, such an interesting ongoing area of research. Um, I, I am so fascinated by the fact that we can actually conduct the radio astronomy observations that we're doing to find all of the different molecules and chemical compounds that are present in various regions of the disk that are absent too close to the star or that appear at a certain distance away and then new ones that appear even further away. It's like, it's like everything that can be destroyed by too much or too energetic radiation does get destroyed. But if you move farther away from that protostar, all of a sudden you see it, it starts to exist and sometimes in great abundance. Exactly. Yes, uh, the field of uh, protoplanetary disks and planet formation is really uh, popular nowadays. Because as, as we talked before, uh, one of the biggest questions right now in astronomy and astrophysics uh, is um, how do planets form? And within my uh, uh, field of research, uh, I observe or try to analyze the microphysics of dust grains in protoplanetary disks by using uh, millimeter uh, wavelength observations, mainly from ALMA. And um, what we are focusing on is the dust, our dust accretion processes that will lead to an eventual formation of planets. Uh, we study certain uh, physical characteristics or we want to understand how certain physical characteristics in this appear, such as uh, dust traps, uh, such as uh, crescents, such as ring systems, because all of these physical characteristics are, are the clue, are the clues to try and understand how an eventual planet or a moon could be formed in this system. So yes, that's uh, I think uh, that's why right now uh, planet formation is a really really popular uh, subject in the field. You know, this is this is a fascinating uh, topic that you work on. I. You might laugh at me for how naive this is, but when when I think about how the tiny dust grains grow up to become, you know, these protoplanetesimals, I think of dust grains the same way. Okay, when I was a little kid, um, my uncle came to the apartment I was living in. I was maybe maybe five years old, uh, and my dad's older brother came and he brought me this pack of balloons like large large balloons with with dots and stripes and stars on them uh and i had so much fun with this pack of balloons i would i would blow them up i would rub them against my shirt and stick them on the wall and one day i took two of these balloons that i blew up and i rubbed two of them you know i tied them off and i rubbed both of them on my shirt and I threw them up in the air. 
And I noticed that what they started doing was they started rotating and sometimes they would push each other away and sometimes they would get attracted towards each other while they were in the air. And every once in a while, they would stick together. Before they hit the ground in midair, they would turn, they would attract, and they would stick together and then they would fall to the ground. And I know that you know to a five-year-old what a what a silly little game to play but even as an adult almost 40 years later i can look back at that and that is how i picture the tiny tiny cosmic dust grains that exist that's how i picture them first binding together to form what will grow up into these protoplanetesimals is is that a hopelessly naive picture or is there a grain of truth to that to that picture actually i think it is a very good analogy even though uh, to date we are not sure how two dust grains will glue or you know collide and stick together to eventually form a planet i think that's a a, a very good analogy and it gives I mean, we have found certain hints that uh, correlate with what, with what you were describing. And yes, definitely there are a lot of uh, dynamical processes and physical processes going on in these disks, uh, such as uh, spinning dust grains, uh, uh, dust traps, and accretion processes within certain areas of the, of the disk uh, form uh, due to pressure maxima. And um, I would even go as far as saying that uh, the magnetic field, magnetic fields in protoplanetary disks, even though we're still uh, we're starting to study them, I think they might also uh, play an important role in uh, planet formation. So, yes, I think you, you have a very good analogy there. So I think it's very interesting what you explained. Well, let me let me ask you this. You've you've brought up dust traps a couple of times now. And can you explain to us what a dust trap is? I I have a picture in my head about this the same way that uh, galaxies have spiral arms in them that you just sort of have likely due to a combination of electric and magnetic fields, but also potentially due to gravitational imperfections, uh, I sort of think of, you know, oh, maybe there are going to be regions where uh, these different forces combine to sort of funnel uh, various dust grains preferentially towards one region of space versus another within this protoplanetary disk. But but I think that's probably also a very naive picture. And can you maybe explain to us what a dust trap is and how it works? Well, uh, we talk about dust traps because uh, observations, specifically uh, millimeter observations from ALMA, have shown us um, different physical characteristics, such as concentric ring systems, such as uh, lopsided shapes, uh, large crescents in different parts of the disk. So we think that this can be described as dust traps due to certain uh, changes in pressure throughout the disk. And we're actually trying to understand how this works and how, which, 
how I mean the origin of the formation of these uh, physical characteristics. But yes, this is what we call dust traps because we are seeing certain features in the disks that seem to be related to uh, dust traps due to pressure maximizing certain regions of the disk. So, so it's really uh, differences in pressure that we think are driving the dust. So one of the things that I find really fascinating about this, um, and, and you may or may not find this, you know, revelatory, but this is a topic that I find everyone I talk to on the podcast keeps bringing up, and that is sort of the interplay between instrumentation and what advances in our telescope or observatory technology bring us, along with observation and what we what we see and what we're capable of seeing and what we learn from that, and then theory, which which I'll include simulations with that as well, where you sort of look at the microphysics that underlies this physical system and you try and put together a cohesive picture of what's going on. It sounds like in your field and specifically when you're looking at how dust basically gets uh, pushed into these same regions of a protoplanetary disk and builds itself up to form what will become full-fledged planetary systems, uh, that this is one of those places where where this is exactly how we approach this problem, that we, we use the advances of, in instrumentation to observe things that were beyond the current frontier of last generation's observations. We take that data and extract as much information about it to learn about the physical shape and the various properties of the material inside and how it's dynamically evolving. And then we sort of model it and we apply this theory of what are the different particles at play, what are the different forces that are relevant, and how do they interplay to build up what we know has to be built up. And when theory and what we observe matches up pretty well, we say, oh, maybe we understand what's going on. And where they don't, we say, okay, we're missing something key here. It sounds like this is exactly how the field of studying the behavior of dust in protoplanetary disks is moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Yes, as, as you described, uh, we have these uh, observations which are improving with time and we try to uh, make a connection with uh, our simulations or theory. And if they match, we think, uh, I mean, we, we can explain the physics behind what we're observing. And uh, another interesting thing in radio astronomy, I think nowadays, is that we always talk about uh, multi-wavelength observations, but within the radio astronomy field, it is also very important to have multi-frequency observations because, uh, for example, it, it, it's been really uh, incredible for me to see how um, the microphysics of dust changes within different uh, radio bands. So when you have a, a multi-frequency data set, for instance, you can gather a lot of observational information that you can um, correlate to your models or to the theory or to your simulations. So nowadays, uh, I think we are pointing towards uh, multi-frequency observations within radio astronomy and not only millimeter observations. Uh, for instance, in 
in my case, even though I work with uh, Alma, uh, I also uh, I have started working also with the VLA, which works in uh, lower frequencies than Alma, because uh, multi-frequency observations uh, are really important to give us or to have like a, a complete uh, panorama, complete um, visualization of the of the problem or of the research or of the target you're studying. So yes, definitely. The, the idea is to make uh, or to see the observations match with your models or your simulations and, or your theory. And we're pointing uh, towards having multi-frequency observations or a multi-frequency data set that will help us improve our understanding. You know, I think this is possibly more important for cosmic dust than it is for many other uh, fields of astronomy to get these multi-frequency observations, right? Because when you're talking about getting data in one frequency channel, that's like seeing the universe in monochrome light. And when you are getting things in multiple frequencies, right, that's, that's how we see color is we have three different types. Some some women have four different types, but most people have three different types of cones in their eyes, and they're sensitive roughly to red, green, and blue light. And it's by combining that information from those three different types of receptors that our brains reconstruct color. Now, when you're talking about something like dust, the size of the dust grain is important because um, if you have dust grains that are, say, um, a, f a, a few microns in size, they're going to be better at absorbing short wavelength light and worse at absorbing long wavelength light. And depending on what the dust is made out of, depending on what its composition is, when it re-emits that absorbed light, when it re-emits that absorbed energy, uh, it's going to emit it at a specific set of narrow frequencies. And what frequencies it emits at is going to depend on what that dust is made out of. And also, if the dust is hot, it's going to have a spectrum of emissions that peaks at different frequencies, just like starlight peaks at different frequencies, depending on what temperature it's at. And if the dust you were talking about spinning, if the dust is spinning or rotating or moving, if it has, you know, that type of kinetic energy to it, that's going to affect how it emits and absorbs at different frequencies as well. So I think that I think that this makes total sense when you are looking at a region of space or you're looking at a protoplanetary disk or you're looking at a stellar remnant or just at the plain old boring interstellar medium. Uh, you're really going to learn a lot about the different types of properties that the dust in that region possesses from looking at it in multiple different frequencies at once instead of just getting this monochrome measurement. Is that is that what we learn from it, or are there are there extra things it teaches us, or are there confounding factors that make what I've said way too oversimplified? No, I think what you said uh, really explains uh, the importance of multi-frequency observations. And another interest, interesting thing is that. We don't only observe within the radio frequency range, but we also gather information in the infrared because, uh, 
as you know, uh, those grains also re-emit in the infrared. So by uh, studying both uh, these both ranges in the electromagnetic spectrum, radio and infrared, we get even more information. But yes, I, I mean, I find it amazing uh, when I see my multi-frequency images and I see the differences between them and the kind of physics behind every uh, frequency band or even in the infrared images. The, you, you can gather very, very different information from the different images. So I think it's very important as you just explained. You know, I think that was something that became very clear to uh, most people earlier this year when the first James Webb Space Telescope images were released. And even though both of the sets of images that were released were infrared images, one was from the near-cam instrument, the near-infrared camera, which is shorter wavelengths between about... 700 nanometers and about 5 microns, and the other was from the MIRI instrument, or the mid-infrared instrument, which goes from 5 microns out to, I think James Webb is capable of going out to about 28 microns. But just looking at those two different set of wavelength ranges, even though they're both infrared ranges, uh, it gives you vastly different pieces of information. When it comes to studying dust in any form, you are getting infrared information. You are getting radio information at multiple radio frequencies. And I've also heard, uh, and this is kind of a recent application, but one that I think is very exciting, that the latest experiments and observations that are being taken of the cosmic microwave background, these upcoming uh, CMBS4 experiments, where, where this is the next generation of cosmic microwave background experiments that are being performed, uh, these also are getting relatively large areas of the sky at relatively high resolution, um, where now they're observing them in these specifically microwave frequencies, which which have some overlap with submillimeter astronomy, but which also, uh, you know, a lot of people divide up the electromagnetic spectrum into a lot more than just infrared and radio at high wavelengths, at large wavelengths. They also include microwave. And I think this combination of infrared observatories, of cosmic microwave background optimized observations, and of classic radio astronomy uh, data, this really gives us a chance to sort of see the long wavelength universe, which which cosmic dust is very much highlighted in, in, in color, in full multi-wavelength color, in a way that was probably pretty hard to imagine just a few decades ago. Yes, and I think that highlights very well the importance of the of multi-frequency or multi-wavelength uh, astronomy. Now, talking in, in general, uh, not only in cosmic dust, but also, I don't know, in uh, galaxies, studies um star formation even exoplanets uh, whenever you have a multi-frequency or multi-wavelength data set you gather a lot of information and i think that's that's what we should be doing as a field right now i mean i i don't think there are very many people who are pushing back against that idea i think 
the only the only people who don't think we should be studying this in in more wavelengths of light are either the people who think that you know only their specific field their specific subfield of astronomy is the only important one uh and to hell with all the others or they're people who think that you know we we shouldn't be ambitious in advocating for the tools we need to push back the frontiers of the universe, that they are sort of more uh, more modest in the types of instruments and observatories that they're looking forward to. Uh, because I, I agree completely, you know, there are all sorts of astrophysical sources and phenomena out there. And there is this old saying that one astronomer's noise is another astronomer's data. And we know that, oh, wow, you don't even have to be that old. Um, if you look at the last two decades of cosmic microwave background research, if you look back at WMAP and Planck and all the ground-based efforts that have coincided uh, with those times and that are coming after, um, we would have really strongly misinterpreted what this leftover light from the Big Bang looks like. And, and we have misinterpreted it at numerous points and in numerous ways along that journey over the last two decades if we hadn't understood the effects of cosmic dust. Um, there was, uh, I'll say about 19 years ago when the first WMAP data came out, uh, there was this claim that was wildly incorrect about how early um, the universe became reionized, which is related to how early enough stars formed to kick electrons off of the nuclei they were bound to. Um, and I think understanding optical depth and cosmic dust and the effects of what we were seeing and how it impacted what we were seeing was instrumental in that. You'll remember a few years ago, um, there was the claim from the BICEP2 collaboration that they had seen primordial gravitational waves influence on the light from the CMB in the B-mode polarization. And that too was due to an incorrect understanding of dust based on preliminary data. And I think that, you know, to lots of people who study the leftover glow from the Big Bang, yeah, all of this stuff, all of this cosmic dust is just noise to be understood and subtracted out. But to people like you, I imagine the cosmic microwave background is noise that needs to be subtracted out. And the dust is where all of the interesting things are happening, like dust grains are being born and planets are being formed and growing up. And eventually this dust is going to grow up and start asking questions like, where did I come from and how did I get to be here and what is this universe I'm living in? So I wouldn't be so quick to listen to the people who advocate against multi-wavelength astronomy or multidisciplinary astronomy because this data contains something useful for almost everyone. Exactly. And it is funny that you mentioned that we uh, in the cosmic dust field want to get rid of the CMB, which is true. But at the same time, uh, anomalous microwave emission was discovered because of CMB observations. So uh, you, as, as you said, um, 
we could be studying certain phenomena in certain frequency ranges and discover another thing. So yeah, I think that it is very important to to focus on that. But yes, everything I I agree with everything you said. Well, I'm gonna see if I can come up with something that you disagree with then. So. <laughs> um, when I when I look out at the universe, right, I, I look out at the Milky Way on a on a clear night, and I can see that yes, okay, it's littered with all of these stars, but there are also these dark bands that run through this, and I know I'm seeing dust, I'm seeing dust that blocks the light, and as I look closer to the center of the Milky Way, I notice that yes, the the swath of stars that I see becomes thicker and brighter, but also it looks like the dust becomes thicker. Um, there are some things I can't really imagine seeing with my eyes that you can reveal by looking at this longer wavelength data. Like, I, I know there's got to be gas and dust both in the plane of the Milky Way, but I can't really imagine seeing the magnetic field lines that run through the galaxy with my own eyes. I can't really imagine seeing how that dust is aligned along those magnetic field lines. But but that's something that really happens, doesn't it? How How can I use radio data or long wavelength data that I collect to determine what's going on with the galactic magnetic field and how it affects the various types of gas and dust that are present within the galaxy. Well, as you said, uh, for instance, in our galaxy or towards the center of our galaxy, we have a lot of uh, dust, the dust population, and uh, we have a magnetic field. And uh, it, of course, we cannot observe it directly uh, with our eyes or using optical telescopes, but there's a phenomena which we call polarized dust emission, which is based on dust grains alignment with the magnetic field lines, the ambient magnetic field lines. And these are dust grains will re-emit or will emit a thermal um, radiation, thermal emission, but at the same time they are aligned with this uh, magnetic field line. So we can trace the magnetic field morphology by measuring the emission of these dust grains which are aligned with the magnetic field. So by doing this, by using ALMA, we can uh, measure the polarized dust emission and map the magnetic field morphology. Is this something you can even do in three dimensions? Is this something you can even do when you're looking at something like the galactic center where you might have many uh, layers of dust, like you have a, an, a spiral arm of dust that's close to us towards the galactic center, and then you might encounter a second spiral arm or a third spiral arm that's, you know, maybe 10,000 light years away, maybe 16,000 light years away. Is it possible to disentangle that? And I'm asking this because I'm, I'm sure I'm confused here, but I normally think of magnetic fields 
as affecting the polarization of light uh, through things like Faraday rotation, where if light passes through a magnetized region, uh, that magnetic field is going to cause a change in the polarization of the light. But it sounds like what you're telling me is actually the fact that the dust itself that gets heated up exists in a region where there is a magnetic field means that the light emitted by the dust itself is going to come intrinsically polarized. And yes, there will be secondary effects like maybe Faraday rotation or something else on top of it, but the fact that the dust emits polarized light to start with, that's the dominant effect. Yes, exactly. Uh, about the... Um dimensional aspects of these observations. So far, uh, what I've seen and what I've done using a polarized dust emission is um, mapping the magnetic field morphology uh, on the plane of the sky. But you raised an interesting issue because, uh, for instance, during a, a, a research project I worked in a couple years ago, which was uh, studying the effects of magnetic field towards a uh, high mass star forming region. Uh, we discussed a lot uh, about we discussed about the projection effects because exactly I mean we, we have the magnetic field on the plane of the sky, but we can have a different projection effects. So I would say that a solution for that would be uh, again multi frequency observations and to try and understand the region you're studying to see uh, these different projection effects. Um, but uh, in general, uh, this uh, polarized dust emission is measured or it's, it is mapped on the plane of the sky. Okay. But yes, and, and also, as you said, uh, what we are measuring are the, we're measuring the thermal emission uh, that comes from the, these dust grains that are aligned with respect to the magnetic field lines due to external radiation affecting them. You know, one of the things one of the things that I found kind of fascinating is all of the stuff we've talked about about why dust is interesting, except for it, its effect on the cosmic microwave background, although I, I guess including its effect on the cosmic microwave background, uh, is when we talk about the dust in the interstellar medium and the dust arising from nebulae, from stellar remnants uh, that we find in star-forming regions, that we find in protoplanetary disks. This is all different types of astronomy that reflect what's going on inside our own galaxy. But there are plenty of people interested in cosmic dust that are interested in both cosmic dust in extragalactic sources in other galaxies and that maybe even are interested in cosmic dust in the intergalactic medium because although the intergalactic medium is full of ionized matter, right? We have the warm, hot intergalactic medium or the whim. We also have some dust that exists in the space between galaxies. Can you, can you shed any light for us on why it would be interesting to study dust outside of the Milky Way instead of just within it? Um, this is when the issue of angular resolution rises up 
because yes, it would be really interesting to. Uh, I mean, you can study cosmic dust, extragalactic cosmic dust, but the issue here is the angular resolution of these observations because. Uh, since you're studying uh, cosmic uh, dust regions uh, that are further away and in different galaxies, uh, you are capable of observing uh, wider regions. But if you want to study uh, smaller regions, let's say certain star-forming regions in other galaxies or even protoplanetary disks in other galaxies, we don't have uh, the technical cap capabilities to achieve this angular resolution. I mean, we, we have them, but kind of difficult yet to, to implement them. And um, for instance, another thing, uh, if you want to study anomalous microwave emission in other galaxies, it's very difficult because we want to achieve certain level of angular resolution in order to resolve the regions where this um, emission comes from. And this applies to cosmic dust in general. So I would say that even though we're capable of uh, observing a dust emission, extragalactic dust emission, uh, we are constrained as in which targets we are able to observe. If you want to observe really small regions or small targets, we have an issue with the angular resolution, at least in radio. No, I it, we talk uh, in other wavelengths. I don't know infrared. Maybe we have a little more uh, technical capabilities right now. But in radio, we are struggling with angular resolution to, to study extragalactic sources. So if we if we want to study things like protoplanetary disks or individual stellar remnants, um, we should really be very thankful that we live in a dust rich galaxy. Because if we lived in a red and dead or a dust-free galaxy, we would only have extragalactic sources really to, to study these things in. And that, uh, that means we would necessarily need that higher angular resolution, which means we would need something as massive as the Event Horizon Telescope dedicated to study a single object or, or an array of telescopes in space or something akin to that to be able to achieve these resolutions we needed. Exactly. That's why, uh, yeah, we have the capabilities because we could use an EHT, but it is not um, practical. So, uh, yes, that's our the thing right now. We need to we would need to achieve higher angular resolutions if we lived in a, a dust depleted galaxy. So luckily we uh, we live in a very dust rich galaxy and we are able to study different uh, phenomena within our galaxy. Well, phew, lucky us for that. I, I have a new appreciation for the Milky Way's dust now. It's not it's not just something in the way of my other observations, is it? I mean, it depends on uh, which kind of uh, astronomy you do, but some of us really love dust, so I know certain astronomers might hate love dust a little bit, so it depends. All right, well, something for everyone then. I like that. Uh, fantastic. Uh, Carla, uh, to switch gears for a little bit, uh, is it okay if I ask you a little bit about the outreach efforts that you've done? I know that you um, have been running a Spanish language sort of uh, outreach uh, program uh, under your 
online handle AstroCarla. Can you tell us a little bit about what sort of outreach endeavors you've been involved in and why outreach is so important to you personally? Of course. Well, uh, I'm Peruvian, uh, and uh, within Latin America, I'd say that the I mean, the most notorious country in astronomy would be Chile, of course, because of the great telescopes they have. But uh, certain countries such as mine, certain Latin American countries such as mine, uh, even though we have a lot of um, people interested in, in, in physics, astronomy, and science in general, uh, most of them don't have the opportunity to achieve this goal. And... Um, Part of this is because we don't have a lot of information uh, available about these kinds of careers. So when I started studying abroad, when I left uh, Peru, I saw that in other countries there was a lot of uh, information about these careers and this will help uh, future students or people interested in these areas to make uh, the decision to study this career or to not be afraid of, stud of studying these types of careers. So I thought, okay, I will use uh, the power that social media has right now, nowadays, and I will open this platform called AstroGarla. And my main platform is in Instagram. It's my biggest platform. And well, I am also in Twitter and TikTok. And uh, what I do is I talk about astronomy, astrophysics, physics, and uh, using short videos. And yeah, my, uh, these, are these videos are in Spanish because my goal is to reach the Spanish-speaking audience, mainly in Latin America. And it's been really great because uh, I have had the opportunity to uh, talk to a lot of uh, people in Latin America that is interested in studying uh, astronomy, astrophysics, or even physics, and to talk about these kinds of careers, uh, to uh, help them with their uh, doubts, with any questions they have. And I think it's been really, really great because that is my goal, to give more visibility to this area of science, uh, in my country and in Latin America in general. And I think that also the fact that they see that there are Latin Americans doing this, that we exist and that we come from different Latin American countries, I think it's very valuable because then you have representation and new generations will feel uh, more confident by seeing that if I did it they also they can also do it so yes that's my main goal with uh my platforms apart from informing or teaching about astronomy and astrophysics in spanish you know that that i think is wonderful and i will make sure that we put uh links in the show notes on both soundcloud and spotify to your instagram your twitter and your tiktok so that people can follow and see you on there um you know this this is really wonderful i think to hear you talking about wanting to be an ambassador for people who don't necessarily see 
themselves represented on the popular or media or even academic, um, you know, among the people that they see doing astronomy, doing astrophysics. Um, for you, when you were growing up, uh, I don't imagine that there were very many Peruvian women that you could look up to and say, that's the type of astronomer or astrophysicist I want to be. Um, but you never found yourself deterred from pursuing it. Can I ask you uh, on a personal level what your experience was that that led you to be an astronomer slash astrophysicist? Yes. Um, well, even though uh, I can say I had a certain privileges in my education because during my education, I had access uh, for Example, to learn English at least uh, to communicate myself in English you know um, I had a good education I had the opportunity to meet uh, different people from different countries and that gave me kind of um, a little bit of privilege uh, in the sense that I could have access to more information about this career but even though this was the case, as you mentioned, I didn't see myself represented because, yes, a Peruvian girl and all my role models at that time were uh, uh, public figures such as, let's say, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Carl Sagan, which are great astronomers, I really admire them, especially Carl Sagan, but I saw them as uh, figures that were really far away from what I could be as a Latin American uh, girl at that time. So, but I decided to, to pursue my career because uh, even though I didn't feel myself rep represented, um, I still had certain access to information and to education that I could uh, use to uh, make this decision. So, but I would like that to change because I think that if new generations, uh, regardless of their, uh, you know, the opportunities they have uh, in education, they should see that they have people from their country uh, doing things that they they also want to do, so they can feel that they can also do them. That it, these kinds of careers are not only um, things that people from other countries do, that we can also follow these uh, career paths. Even though in our country we don't have a lot of opportunities uh, in the job market, we can still pursue these careers and we can start these opportunities in our countries in the job market by making contacts throughout the world, by doing collaborations. So that's what I want Like to people from my country see uh, that there are Peruvians around the world doing astronomy, and that's what helped me uh, take, make this decision. And my parents, of course, like, I was lucky that they supported me. But this is not always the case because of the lack of information. And I understand that uh, some uh, people and some parents might be scared of uh, listening to their children or their... Um, you know, the, 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 the children say, yeah, I want to study physics or astronomy because the first thought would be, uh, okay, but uh, what are you going to work in? What are you going to do with that career in this country, in Peru, where we don't have a lot of job opportunities in this career? Um, 
So I, I, I don't blame them because there's we don't have information. We don't we don't have people talking about this. We don't have uh, people uh, representing and saying, hey, we are also Peruvians and we did this. So your kid also has the opportunity to do this. And yes, I think that that should change. And that's what uh, we are trying to do, because uh, besides me, there are other Peruvian scientists in different areas doing outreach. So I think that's very, very valuable. You know, I think that's that's wonderful. And it's also very astute to point out the importance of a quality education available to people to point out the importance of international collaboration because science is truly the ultimate international endeavor that knows and should know no borders between countries or states or different different people with different backgrounds. Um, but I think you also bring up this remarkable point of bringing your world-class education and bringing that ability to make things accessible to others and to be an ambassador to others back to where you came from to bring those opportunities back to people who might not have seen those opportunities as being open to them previously you know peru peru has the same carl sagan as the rest of the world but they also only have one carla arcetord and i hope that uh you are able to fulfill your dream of of making this education of making this career path uh not only more accessible but to make it feel like it's within reach of every young peruvian child who who would think or dream of pursuing it for themselves Yes, I, I hope so. And I, I think we're making some progress towards that. Uh, also in politics, I mean, there's still a lot that has to be done, but we are, I mean, social media gives us the opportunity to raise our voices. And I, I think that's valuable because now uh, people who uh, make the decisions in the country are now listening to scientists in the country due to social media. And I think that's important because we wouldn't see that. We, we didn't see that in the past. <laughs> and that's why we, we didn't make much progress. But I think that we are we are in the in the path, in the right path. So let's let's hope it goes forward. You know, I, I hope that as well. And I think it's also really important to highlight that you should be proud of what you are accomplishing and not just, you know, despair at all the problems that are currently beyond your ability to fix no one no one is capable of fixing everything but we are all capable of improving the world a little bit at a time through the actions that we can take and you've been someone who's been actively taking those actions and succeeding at the goals that you've set forth for yourself so you know thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing a bit of this, uh, a bit of your world uh, on both the education side and the outreach side, and also um, for all we're learning and still want to know about cosmic dust out there in the universe. Carla, before we go, can I ask you if you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with all of our listeners out there? I want to thank you for your kind words, for the invitation to your podcast. I had a really, really great time. And well, yeah, I want to uh, tell all of your maybe Latin American speakers, Spanish speaking speakers that uh, 
if they are really, really interested in pursuing a career in science, even though I know that in Norwegian uh, job offers, and even not only job offers, also to to choose a career in science, it, it's very difficult because of the opportunities, because of the access. If you really want to do it, uh, take the advantage we have right now with social media to reach out and ask the other scientists, other Latin American scientists, scientists that have already uh, walked through this path, ask us, ask, we will be more than happy to help you to answer all your questions. We are available on social media, so please ask us, don't be afraid to ask, and don't be afraid to pursue your, your dreams and your passions. So there's a, a science is for everyone, every one of us, everyone in the world, it is not limited to one country or one group of people, it is for, for all of us and it is for humankind. So don't be afraid to ask and use the power that social media gives us nowadays to ask and to reach us. And yes, that's what I would say to not only to Latin Americans, but to everyone in the world who wants to pursue a career in science. Well, that's a wonderful message. And to all of you listening out there, uh, don't be afraid to say hello. Or if you want to contact Carla to simply drop her an hola, and she will be happy to, uh, to help you achieve your dreams too. Um, so I want to thank all of you out there for joining us and for listening. And I'd like to give a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who help make the Starts With a Bang podcast possible. I'd like to give a shout out to everyone donating to us at the $5 a month level or above. So thanks go to... Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chuist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Seagreen Mango, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, Flo, Frank, George Church, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Kilio Opu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parik, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Benhead, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCann, Campbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Serzakian, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Pikarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.